0: Guys, we're in the middle of a pandemic, and these are trying times. It's hard on our mental health, our mental state, and this is why I love our sponsor today, BetterHelp. They're the largest online counseling platform worldwide. They change the way people get help with facing life's challenges by providing convenient, discreet, affordable access to licensed therapists. BetterHelp makes professional counseling available anytime, anywhere, through a computer, tablet, or smartphone. It's brilliant. It's brilliant. Sign up today, go to BetterHelp.com backslash SolvingHealthcare and get 10% off sign-up fees. Welcome to Solving Healthcare. I'm cordial Karamantay. I'm an ICU and palliative care physician here in Ottawa and the founder of Resource Optimization Network. We are on a mission to transform healthcare in Canada. I'm going to talk with physicians, nurses, administrators, Patients and their families because inefficiencies, overwork, and overcrowding affects us all. I believe it's time for a better healthcare system that's more cost-effective, dignified, and just for everyone involved. Qualcast Nation, we have a spectacular episode with Dr. Steph Burrell in the mix. Let me tell you about my friend here, okay? He's born in Sweden. Lives in Canada, trained in the US. He's a community medicine trained physician. He did his MBA, MPH, Masters of Public Health at John Hopkins University, Boland. And we're bringing him on the show t- for a couple reasons. He is from Sweden, he has got relatives in Sweden. Really, it gives us an opportunity to hear that perspective like, what is actually going on? Are people going in the streets, going to bars? Are the hospitals being overrun? What's what's the scenario in Sweden? What's been their uh, true approach to dealing with the pandemic? Second thing I, I found fascinating about uh, Steph, I heard him on another podcast on plenary sessions, and you know it was interesting hearing how much backlash he got from colleagues and and, and the media when just voicing their opinion on some of the public health measures and. I think this is what I've been finding scary. We need to be able to have an open dialogue about what's going on. You know, I was a bit inspired after hearing our public health officials locally saying, you know, we shouldn't be celebrating Halloween, which to me just drew the line. You know, after we've worked so hard to express to people, be outside, be in small cohorts, do what we can to stay safe, and this seemed like one of the opportunities that we had, and and so I was inspired by his willingness to be more outspoken the other thing we'll talk about here is how you know some places have succeeded with focused responses you know not just blanket statements and saying we need to close bars and restaurants when those aren't the areas of of concern you know so having that conversation with them talking about how COVID's really been impacted so many of the social socioeconomically hit people and races so I gotta tell you guys this is a fascinating conversation with a intelligent, well-spoken, holistically approaching individual. So let's dive in. Quadcast well, Nation, I've been ultra excited about this conversation with Steph Burrell because, you know, I think Steph, you and I have similar apprehension on how we are approaching this pandemic. We've sat by the wayside and, and, and been rah, rah, rah to our public health for several months. But, you know, there have been several concerns, I think. And there is not a better person and a better qualified person that I can think of than Steph Burrell. So welcome to the show, my friend.
1: Thank you. Yeah, I know. It's a pleasure to be here.
0: I, I think we could start a bit about your background, just because it's a bit... Like it's global, you know what I'm saying? Like,
1: it's a like, very Canadian story.
0: It's a very Canadian story. So yeah, how did you land in Hopkins, my friend?
1: Yeah, I think that that's great. So I, yeah, I was born in Sweden. I say it's a very Canadian story because we're all from everybody's from somewhere, do you know what I mean, including yeah. everybody in this household and and you know, but we all feel very Canadian. The um, so I I was born in Sweden, grew up in Sweden. My my family were immigrants to Sweden as well. They'd come from Poland. Um, But we were, you know, and and my dad um, at some point never loved actually living in Sweden. And he brought us to Canada at some point um, when I was about 11 years old. We, um, I lived in Winnipeg, uh, but I got to say that I, Winnipeg was a bit of a a stretch from Stockholm and I moved to Montreal as soon as I could. And, you know, very traditional, went to McGill, went to med school during after uh, I was really heading towards you know, doing internal medicine, I had the opportunity to meet Alan Ronald, who's at the University of Manitoba, and I heard him give a talk about his work um, across Sub-Saharan Africa, and specifically in Kenya at that point, with Frank Plummer, who sadly recently passed away. Um, and um, I kind of ran after him, and I was so excited, and, and he ended up setting up a rotation in Uganda. And I ended up going to Uganda. And there, uh, there was a new center uh, that had just been uh, built. Uh, and it was run in collaboration between Macquarie University and Johns Hopkins. So I got to meet all these folks and kind of learn more about this idea of like working in public health and human rights. And I radically shifted everything I was going to do, only applied to community medicine, or what is now called public health and medicine residencies. Uh, and um, you know, Went to Johns Hopkins for my MPH and my MBA program, a combined degree program, uh, and then kind of retained an affiliation there. And and after I finished my residency, and even during my residency, kept working there. Started there as faculty about eleven years ago, and you know continued that uh, that partnership. So it it came out of kind of left field, but it's a wonderful institution that I I feel very connected to. Wow!
0: Absolutely. And so you have. So, like, when did you move to to Canada? Like, do you yeah, have memories of of uh, of Sweden? Like, just oh, absolutely.
1: And I, I'll note this actually. My mom, uh, when my little brother finished university, my mom my mom moved back to Sweden. Okay. And I, um, almost every opportunity, I would I, I i go, I would go back there. And and now, you know, pre COVID, with the opportunity to travel as much through Europe as I do, I would often try to spend like I know this sounds whimsical now, but spend like a night. You know, I would like flying up from wherever, land in Amsterdam or Paris, fly to Sweden for a day on like a Friday night, spend Saturday there with my mom. I know, I know it sounds ridiculous at this point. Fly back and then on Sunday, you know, continue my, my journey back on to Toronto or wherever. But no, I remember Sweden well. I, I remember actually, you know, I think this is the thing, like, I was never like, I in like, I, I consider it, you know, my birthplace, but I really am very Canadian. Yeah. I'm very deeply Canadian. We, that's a whole different conversation, but I very much associate with this country and and all that it stands for.
0: And I mean, the reason I think it's important to emphasize is because, you know, we hear a lot about what's going on in Sweden with with COVID. We hear the good and the bad and, but you have a a bit of a better perspective because you have family still there. So like, what is actually going on in Sweden? because you hear such different things in terms of, you know, people are going out, li- living their regular lives uh, or vice versa. So wh- what have you heard or seen?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think, it's, I think it's so interesting in terms of like how, you know, Sweden has addressed or sort of approached this entire uh, pandemic and, and I'll note, whatever we wanna say about it, it's far more of a traditional public health response than many other places in the world, mm. including here. Mm. So I mean, again, it's like whatever value judgment you want to uh, you know assign to that, it's a far more traditional approach. And, and there were certain things that I think um, you know that they really considered priorities. So one of them was I think trying to understand like empiric drivers rather than the sort of very rapid move to restriction based approaches. So I'll say just as a starting point, you know, in my public health training it doesn't feel familiar to me to move right to kind of a, like a restrictions-based public health response. That as a starting point to me feels, you know, kind of foreign. And I think in Sweden, there's certain things that they did very early. Um, they, I mean, you know the, you know, they, they instituted for example, paid leave um, for all their providers from the first day. So you literally, it used to be that you get paid leave from the second or third day, but now from the first day you're feeling unwell, if you live in a high-risk home setting or you, live in a high, or you work in a high-risk occupation, um, you know, you can call in sick right away. And so I think, like, there was some of these things because they started noting that, you know, there's, and we knew this from very early days in this pandemic, like, this infection was not affecting everybody equally. Like, this idea the virus doesn't discriminate, to me, I'll just say it's like an ally, was sort of like the All Lives Matter movement. Do you know what I mean? Like, it's like this idea that, like, well, we're all in the same boat. And I think people have like said very eloquently, like, we're not all in the same boat. Mm. Many of us are not in the same boat at all. We may not even be in the boat. Do you know what I mean? Like some mm. folks have so little COVID exposure that this that they're sort of bystanders to this whole thing. And and I think in Sweden, like they recognize very quickly high risk occupations including taxi drivers, Uber drivers, delivery folks, mm. people that are in these high exposure occupations that you know, also we're living in multi-generational households. And there, even though I think we think of Sweden as just having a baseline, you know, more of a focus on equity, whether it be universal education, like they don't pay to go to university, you know, obviously universal health, similar to, to what we have here. But I think that you know, they noted very quickly that like, the disparities were happening along socioeconomic lines, and it's specifically like really, particularly recent immigrants to Sweden. Mm-hmm. And that tended to live in more multi-generational households, and also work as taxi drivers. So this of like this intersection between like working and living conditions. And so even though you saw these incredibly high levels of mortality, it was really concentrated among long-term care facilities. You mm-hmm. know, as as has been seen in many so many places. And then secondly, in um, in more you know densely populated and more economically marginalized parts of Stockholm. And I think that's where they focus their interventions, and not with like targeted restrictions not like oh these are more economically marginalized parts of the city so we should lock them down and let the rich you know run around and whatnot but actually like think about like what were the strategies that they could use to try to address those needs Mm -hmm. and and try to mitigate them and and that you know takes time and i think you know it's so interesting about sweden and and you know we've been trying to analyze this from the beginning like you know, is like, where was the mortality happening? Again, it was within long-term care facilities. It was tragic, including in the place where my grandparents lived out their lives, like, um, you know, a massive outbreak. And, you know, from the same sorts of things that have happened here, like staff, you know, more economically marginalized healthcare workers going from like facility to facility, home care, facility, home, home, you know, and then living in more densely parts of the town themselves because these aren't the highest paid healthcare workers. and, and really kind of deliver in COVID because they're not resourced to kind of prevent it. And, 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 you know, and, and there being incredible amounts of mortality associated with that. So, I mean, I'll, I'll just say, I think that like Sweden has worked in not a restrictions based approach to try to address those needs. Now there's certain things that they did. It was more like empowerment and recommendations and less enforcement and police. Right. And so as much as we want to say, like, it's interesting to have watched the, the, the evolution of the narrative of Sweden over the last eight months. Like we could play a kind of a drinking game about like the different terms that are used to describe Sweden. So first of all, Sweden chose its economy over its people. They, you know, they hate their people and they're, you know, they're runaway capitalists. And like, if you've ever been to Sweden, you'll note, like, it's all government government runs everything. They're all a bunch of socialists. You know what I mean? Like everybody pays incredibly high tax rates and like, It was amazing to see even the right wing media in the U.S. go from like talking about no go zones in Sweden to all of a sudden like Sweden's the model for the world. And, you know, when when not taking into account, you know, all the different sort of, of like kind of services that exist, you know, including universal healthcare and universal education. Then it's moved to like slowly over time as mortality has decreased and we're getting a better handle that actually like. I've been updating these analyses almost month, you know, monthly because the Swedish uh, Central Statistics Bureau updates their mortality data. Mm-hmm. And you know, there was incredibly high mortality in May and June, but actually like if you look into like later June, July, August and, and now September have been like amongst the lowest mortality months in a really long time. Yeah, April, I September, was like, September, September was, was ever like, September was ever. yeah,
0: one of the lowest period, ever. Yeah.
1: No, no, ever. Yeah. And, and so now, when you kind of look, at, you can see that between 2015 to 2019, we're about, you know, the Sweden's about 2.5% um, higher uh, adjusted mortality, or about 1,800 deaths more than would have been expected. And I think there's more complicated math that needs to go into this, but my guess is by the end of the year, the, the total number of people who died will be about average, you know, yeah. um, and, and so that'll evolve over time. So I think it's it's like, know so now the narrative has changed to like you know well they did lockdown they just did they did a lockdown and then it's like but but did they because like if you actually go and see photos like their lives have changed but nowhere like our lives have changed and people keep saying well their economy tanked anyways and i'm like for those of us like I don't actually care. I, 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 I own no stocks other than like my, in my retirement plans, I guess. Mm-hmm. I don't, you know, I don't care about the economy other than the fact that I recognize that the economy is, is related to people's well-being. Mm-hmm. You know, even in Canada, like people get their meds and their benefits from their employers. They get their dental care through their employers and they get like just a sense of well-being by knowing that they're going to be able to put food mm-hmm. on the table and take care of their families by being employed. And the CERB may cover some of those things, like some of these benefits can cover, but generally speaking, we know that being employed is a social determinant of health. So it's really easy for those of us who are like securely employed to tell people that the economy doesn't matter when like we have nothing to worry about. We're totally comfortable. And so we were joking about this term of like jobsplaining. Do you know what I mean? Like stop jobsplaining to people that jobs don't matter when your job is secure and they've just recently been fired.
0: That's, that's what kills me about a lot of, like, I think the term is like, like people that have the ability to have all these zoom meetings and they're the ones, you know, shaming and dictating what should be done. Whereas, you know, their lives aren't being affected. Like I, I live in Ottawa, which is 70, 70% government, you know, that's right. People are doing fine. Uh, right. A lot of people doing fine. So it's easy to be judgy. I, I got to ask you, though, you know, when you're saying, like, Sweden, you know, they had an approach to deal with the low socioeconomics, the multi-generational homes, because this is what we're seeing here, too, like, at the bedside. Um, and so, like, you know, we we're having a discussion amongst the colleagues, too, like, what what, what did they do? Like, what could you do to, to mitigate risk in those uh, scenarios?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think, so... You know, what's amazing to me, again, sort of coming back to this idea of, like, we have effectively given governments around the world, like, a really easy out. Well, I'll just start, and then I'll get into, like, what I think you can do. Mm. Like, I think whenever cases go up, when you've basically told governments that if they implement some, like, graded level of restrictions, like, close Halloween, close strip clubs, close restaurants, close whatever, that's actually easy, because the only thing you really have to do is call the cops to help you enforce the whole thing. You don't have to figure out how to address the needs of communities. You don't have to engage the communities. You don't have to talk to them, empirically understand risks. You don't have to do any of the sort of core things that we consider critical to public health. You just have to basically start like shutting things down and then again, having like the city enforce it or the, or the province enforce it. And so I do think there's like, a, you know broadly speaking, we should be like, looking at resource-based interventions first. And, and so there's like, some things that just feel like the easiest things in the world and feel painful to me that we haven't done them yet. And so, you know, for example, we recognize like we just, every day now we're learning about more and more outbreaks at long-term care facilities across Ontario. And what's amazing to me is like, why are these outbreaks happening? Like, we're we've implemented IPAC, like infection prevention and control, we're trying to optimize those we're working with communities to, we're working with communities of, of like employment uh, entities, OPSWA, like the Ontario uh, Personal Support Worker Association among others. People have access to testing regularly. Obviously that's how these, this, that's how these outbreaks are, are being understood to, to be happening. But it's amazing to me that like, virus is clearly entering the building, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. And, and like some percentage of those folks are asymptomatic. Some percentage of those folks are mildly symptomatic. Some percentage of those folks have no idea that they've had a contact, but some folks have know that they've had a contact. Mm-hmm. And, and, I, and I think, again, before we move into this thing of like how dare they not listen to public health rules and whatnot about if they're mildly symptomatic or if they know they had a contact, just ask them about their own needs. Because the reality is, yes, the full-time workers and even some of the part-time workers can get benefits if they don't work and can get paid leave. A lot of the contract hires, agency hires, other folks have no benefits, Mm. nothing. So you ask yourself the question like, and I do this all the time, like my rule in public health is like, how would I feel about it? You know what I mean? Like at its core, how would I feel about it? And if I was worried about like putting food on the table or keeping my household together or taking care of my kids, doing any of the things that a lot of these primary caregivers are doing, I would absolutely continue going to work. And so we've not addressed those needs. We've not provided those folks the security that they need to like, you know what? I think I'm sick or it turns out that like I think I had a contact last week or whatever and I should phone this in and I should feel comfortable that I'm like I'm not going to get fired and I'm and my family's going to be fed. Mm. And and so like that to me just feels like an easy one. The second thing that I think is is like critical is like throughout the beginning of this like At the beginning of the outbreak, so I work, you know, I provide care in shelter settings. Mm -hmm. And, like, on day one, we set up, like, a a shelter recovery site, and we went out, and actually, one of my colleagues, uh, Tomislav Svoboda, moved in there for 13 days. He just, like, lived there. I, you know, like, went back and forth every day, and we were admitting people, and we we ended up, you know, it was about a 40-bed facility until it took about two weeks to get, like, the bigger one uh, up and running, this 150-bed facility. But we ran this thing. But this was only for folks enrolled in basically the homeless system within uh, Toronto. Mm -hmm. There was like, if you were in a densely housed environment, unstably housed, couch surfing, any of those things, like you weren't allowed to come in Emerges would be like, Hey, we have somebody he's couch surfing. Can he come? And the answer was no, we can't have you come. So then we're sending them back for 10 days while they're under investigation. And they're getting this advice to like, make sure you isolate. And they're like, where would you like me to isolate, sir? Do you know what I mean? Where where should I isolate? Like on this couch, in my shared apartment. So, you know, we sort of like this, this constant thing of like trying to educate people into like, make sure you isolate. It's like, where, where am I going to isolate? Where? And the answer is like, we have no idea where you should isolate. I don't know, figure it out, peace out. You know what I mean? And so, and then next person. And so it's like, at its core, masks, like, Closing restaurants doesn't fix that. Mass interventions, like that does, they're not empiric, you know, because empiric would be like, let's figure out where this person can isolate because if they are, especially if they live in a multi-generational household, especially if they were just any household where they don't at least have one room per person and that data, it's not like we did a study together with AMFAR, the foundation for AIDS research. And this is, these are U S data showing that, looking at particularly, um, like predominantly African American counties in the US and like, why were they at risk? And, you know, the biggest determinant was really like that those counties were more likely to include having more than one person per uh, room per household. Mm -hmm. You know, was like a major one. Um, You know, being in more high exposure occupations, being more economically marginalized. So you can like explain away the disparities very easily. It's nothing biological, obviously. You explain away these disparities in very easy ways of like living and working conditions. And then only after you've looked at all those socioeconomic disparities, can you then think about like, is there anything else going on? Which by the way, there isn't. When you adjust for those things, like the differences fall away. Mm-hmm. So that, I mean, I would just say is like another thing. that I just want to say one thing about like testing in this province, in so many places is like we've set up testing basically for like the zoom generation or like, you know, hundred percent. Yeah. We've set it up. Like I think people are calling it the zoomocracy, which yes. I think is not unreasonable. You know, the work from home generation is like, we, how does a shift worker who works at McDonald's or anywhere say, you know what? Hey, I need uh, four hours to like go to this testing facility. I'm going to wait. Can you pay me during that time? And the answer is like, not only obviously are they not going to get paid, you know, but they could get fired. You know what I mean? Like they don't, you know, like there's a whole question about like so many people have like lost their jobs in very murky ways over the last, you know, eight months. And so there's, there's also this dynamic of like, we've not really like set up testing to be aligned with where needs are. We've done it when there's outbreaks, we've done outreach testing and obviously in shelters, we've done it. We've seen some innovative stuff where people have set up in buildings, like, Mm -hmm. you know, famously, you know, famously, but Toronto East General or Michael Guerin Hospital like set up a place in like a, a you know a, a building that's uh, in, in Scarborough that's more economically marginalized and, and it was a great thing to do but it was like a one-off that that should be like the basis of the way that we're doing things and not just setting up for like rich people with their kids and you know kind of getting tested for school so so I just say it's like there's a couple key things is like how we're doing testing Making sure that we're like at least temporarily alleviating barriers to care. We still obviously, if you're undocumented in this country, like I can see you, but I really can't do anything for you. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like I, I I can see you and and like we have an internal billing program to like let people do it, but I can't order anything for you. I can't do anything for you. So even if you can get COVID tested, you can't get provided anything after that. We you know, we haven't set up housing context at all to to tell and we haven't set up any of the sort of paid leave things that you know or interventions and and put those in place. So it's like those felt like those were easy wins. It's like here we are and like the only thing we've done is like well, all right again like let, like look what are we going to shut down now? Okay, Halloween. Let's shut down Halloween. Do you know what I mean? <laughs> it's like it's so it pains I, me. Um
0: you know like, it's funny uh Steph cuz you you voiced on um, I heard you on plenary and saying how like you were hesitant to voice your opinion with stuff just because of the media and the backlash within the community. It was, it was, I did my first oppositional to public health uh, address when, and Halloween was the kind of the thing that kind of jump started it because it's like, you've been telling people the whole time, go outside, be in a small group, do this safely. Kids are already playing, going to school together and you're going to say this isn't enough right now. Like, it's just like, People getting beat down. And I'm and like, as you said, we got problem spots with the, the multi-generational and homes and low socioeconomic situations. Meanwhile, these businesses that were hustling, that were trying to do everything they can to stay afloat oh, and terrific. abiding by public health uh you know uh mandates, and then they're like, oh no by the way, shame on you guys for whatever you're doing out there because shame on you. And plus we're going to punish you and restrict things for another month. And I just, to me, it's, it's just, it's just too much. It's all too much. I, I don't know. It's just, um, it's getting upsetting.
1: I actually, I mean, I I, want to say something about restaurants. It's it's so interesting to me is like, I, I, I love empiric data. Like it's like I spend my days in impaired data, and I think what what's interesting is like. So I wanted to just understand like, what are the data telling us that like restaurants are the issue? Yeah, yeah. I mean we're yeah. we're not we're not dumb. I'm 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 not the brightest, person, I'm not dumbest person. Like tell it to us, and then I think people will understand because I mean we're both providers. Mm-hmm. Like I always say this, I'm like you don't force a patient into something. Like in in Toronto we have like three like forced beds at West Park for like MDR TV where like people won't comply. Like we, and and like we form people incredibly rarely. And even then it's 72 hours. And you know what I mean? Like Mm -hmm. we have to work with our clients to find mutual wins of things that are going to work because forcing them into things is a quick way for just to destroy the relationship. Mm -hmm. And as providers, like the most important thing we can do at least in outpatient medicine is like, especially marginalized communities and marginalized people. Is build trust and Mm. and the best way to do that is to like be able to explain it and I am often asked to explain these things and I can't and so when I've gone to like again I say this with like respect to the folks in science table because I know they're busy and and I'm sure it's like unpaid or uh, whatnot but like I'm trying to understand like what data are you using to close restaurants by And I went in and I found like the one study where they had done like a a case control in the United States of like 350 people with COVID and found that like people who had gone to, who had COVID were more likely to be an ethnicity. It was their words, not mine. Mm -hmm. um, To be an ethnicity and to have been at a restaurant. And like, you don't know that they like were delivering food from that restaurant. You don't know if they ate at that restaurant, if they were doing dishes at that restaurant, like you don't know anything. So it's like, if there has to, it's gotta be better than this. Like we, we need a higher standard because in order for you to meaningfully like shut down Halloween, you have to, you can't just like rely on the precautionary principle and say, well, we don't know, so let's just shut it down and, and you know, we'll all sleep better at night. It's like, there, it has to be more empiric than that. And, and I'll say the media piece, just as a personal anecdote, and this happened to me, like in March, I tend to like, there's a lot of white men in the media. I was like, I was just like a, like, there's an over, like, we're overrepresented. And I just don't want to be like another person in the media when there's a lot of other folks can talk about it. But there was one element that I thought wasn't talked about early on, which is that like, these things are seasonal. These are seasonal coronaviruses. And in March, somebody like reached out and was like, hey, do you want to talk about this? <clears throat> so I said, sure. Like, I think this thing will slow down in the summer, but... It also means it's going to pick back up in the winter. Like that's just, that is the nature of these things. And we wrote a paper about it and some other work about it. Um, and then, it's, it's, I, you know, BBC uh, saw this thing and then they asked me to come on. So I went on BBC and I talked about seasonality and it was the same thing. It wasn't like, don't worry about it. It was like in the context of mitigations, this thing should slow down in the summer. But by the way, in the context of mitigations, this thing's still going to pick up in the winter wintertime. Mm-hmm. Immediately after that, I got calls from people that i work with that are like hey you need to be really careful about what you say and i was like what did i say you know (laughs) what i mean and they're like it turned out donald trump at the same time was also talking about seasonality and he's using it in the way that he would do which is like don't worry about anything this thing's going to go away and it will never come back that's by the way fundamentally different than what i was saying i was like i think this is going to slow down the summer which is great planning time because come october September, October, like it's likely coming back no matter what we do. So let's use that as a time to plan, prepare, think about it. Like you pull all, all our data together. And, but it was very much of like, you need to be very careful about how you're being perceived. And it's, and after that, I was just like, I'm not doing any more media. Mm-hmm. I'm not, I'm not engaging in this because it's, it's hitting too close home. And I'm just going to write papers and I've written a bunch of papers, but I'm like, I, because I think at some point we're going to have to learn what happened? Mm-hmm. Like, what happened here? <laughs> what, what happened? <laughs> what, how did we make these decisions? Like, who was in charge? What was driving these decisions? And I, I, I don't think this time in history will be viewed well from any, from many numbers.
0: Oh, yeah. can it be? It's like, you know, I, I, yeah. I mean, I, I, I'm trying to be careful too here, but yeah. like, yes, you, you want you, you learn. Like we kind of talked about in the beginning, like I think you just want to learn as you go and uh, learn quickly. So yes, you locked down. You didn't know what the hell's going on. It was scary, or whatever. Once again, not typical public health principles, but you know we don't know what sure. we're we're doing, what we're dealing with. But as information is coming in, once you realize the the mortality is decreasing, it's not as as deadly as we th- thought it was going to be the there's some things that are more predictable about how it's tough to get it outside. Clearly it's showing some seasonality, Um, you know, older people versus younger people. Like, like let's start thinking about this and let's be strategic. It's like, it's like you said about the, the, what we're trying to do to mitigate risk It's you are shutting down restaurants, shutting down kids activities and show me the data that's showing that, this is associated with outbreaks. This is associated with poor outcomes. I could get behind that. I could totally get behind that. And don't give me these one case scenario, like I was talking, I play hockey so my buddy sent me in the CDC uh, oh, I yeah. yeah, that one outbreak in Vermont or whatever. I'm like, okay, there's going to be exceptions all the time. I can see why it happened. Is this the norm? Do you know what I'm saying? And like, were they, were they being careful? Were they like, you know, at, at our rink, there's like, only a certain amount of people in the locker room, no face offs, all these kind of things. Like to me we it's like your tweet, man. Is it zero covid versus z- zero covid mortality? And it's like we got to learn how to live with this. It's not going away anytime soon.
1: Yeah. You know, I, I, anyway, I'm going well, on. Well, I know I, I just want to say I mean it's so interesting cuz Senegal has been heralded as a successful country.
0: Yeah, what's a, going a, on yeah. in Africa? I, I, yeah. I have no fear. and why isn't it getting any press? I have, like, I li- that's a legit question. Like, I honestly yeah. don't know what's going down in the motherland, but Senegal, I'm here, interested to hear this.
1: Well, I mean, I'll just say this. So what's so interesting about Senegal is I- I've had the pleasure and the honor of working there for about 15 years. So when COVID Was sorry, first of all, they they, I mean, they have no need, they have amazing public health folks. But there was just a lot of discussions with colleagues there about Senegal because we have a number of projects underway with partners. And and you know, the dynamic is such that they closed down for a few weeks. Um, and but like they opened on May 11th, Mm -hmm. May 11th. So Matisal, President Matisal said, Listen, exactly the words you just used is like. We need to figure out how we're gonna to learn to live with this virus. We're gonna mitigate where we can, but like we can't like, you know, when, when he was about to close down and this was a very tense discussion that a friend of mine shared with me uh, in a meeting, like was gonna like fully lock down the same. And people were like, listen, like a lot of folks here, although, you know, it's, it's a wonderful country, it's a wonderful place, um, still live day to day. And you, you are gonna create a tremendous amount of mortality if you do, you know, if you go down this route of like having people do more like what happened in Rwanda, for example, where it was just, you know, just complete shutdown. And and so they pushed back against it. They did, they organized some of their testing. They, you know, um, figured out how to work with religious leaders to, you know, have safe events and whatnot. And they've had some outbreaks here and there, but by and large, they've managed it and are like rated the number two country in the world on this index of like, countries have succeeded. Number one is New Zealand, which use like military, like managed quarantine. If you test positive, like you just got to go to like this military run hotel. Which so I was like, military run hotels don't feel like hotels at all. There's a different name. We call those jails, you know what I mean? But whatever, like either way, you know, I was like, you couldn't be any more opposite. Senegal saw that it's, you know, it's, it's neighboring country, the Gambia, which is, as you may know is a country completely embedded within Senegal was having troubles and and was kind of needed support in their response. And they like, you know, sent all their ministerial staff to like, you know, partner with um, the folks in the Gambia. So I was like, that's, that's the model. We're like, we work together, we work across borders. We recognize there's movement anyways. What did like Europe do? And what did North America do? Like we nationalistically like shut our borders. We shut our provinces. It's like that feels amazing to me. I mean, I'll, I'll note this across, you know, Sub-Saharan, obviously, like, I'm not African by any means, uh, but I participated in two papers related to sort of looking at um, decision making around sub-Saharan Africa. One, South Africa specifically, because South Africa tends to bear the brunt of like respiratory viruses and respiratory illnesses across uh, sub-Saharan Africa. But it was to say that actually, if, you know, the initial models that we calling, I mean, you must have seen this, 3 million people going to die, overtaking every health system. And it's like, would, could you ever imagine a scenario where you would use data from like Malawi to estimate what will happen in Italy? Yeah. Like, you know what I mean? Like, nobody would do that. And, and, and like here, people had no problem with parametrizing a model using like 80 year olds in Lombardy to like, for, Everywhere, like Africa, the country. Do you know what I mean? Like literally, um,
0: yeah. I, I don't even think it's fair to model what how COVID will behave in Toronto compared to Ottawa. Well, like, oh, that's exactly it. You that's know, true. like I just the, the that was another pet peeve of mine was these dramatic. Even up to a a month ago, they showed the models in Ontario about like, oh, if these cases continue, this is what this is what we're dealing with. And I'm like, you really believe that? I'm like. There's so many assumptions in your model that I, I could guarantee you know are likely to be wrong. Even the um, this was an argument I heard, which blew my my mind, is that they assume in a lot of these models that there's equal dispersion. Well,
2: that's exactly it
0: amongst uh, people. So, like, just to the listener, like, if you're 20 years old, they're saying you're equally likely to be just hanging out with 80 year olds and all that kind of shit, whereas like you know these 22 year olds are hanging out mostly with 22 year olds who are less likely to uh, get sick and spread it to other older people. So it's even that element of modeling is flawed. And so this is uh and, and, and if you look at the number, like we're October 26th, if you continue to look at the the model for even the low, what what they call it? The low scenario. We're still under that right now in terms of, I think, ICU utilization or hospitalization, I forget which term they were using, but uh, that has been uh, a huge detriment in my mind in, in terms of creating fear and creating all these restrictions and such.
1: Right. Oh. But, I, but I'd say like, even to like, sort of simplify past dispersion is this idea that like we're all at the same risk. A lot of the models assume homogeneity of risks across age strata. So, you know, and, and the reality is that, like, we know this is not the case anymore. Mm-hmm. We know that, like, folks in in the wealthier parts of Ottawa are at different risk than folks in more economically margin- marginalized parts, but they're applying, like, a single parameter across these age strata and and just modeling it. And, and sure, like, it looks terrible. I'd say there's a few things. Like, one is this amazing dynamic, and I think it's part of, like, this sort of deep politicization of this response and like Trump and this, I don't know, like all of it feels all like wrapped up in this big old mess. But it's like this argument that like, because we, you know, can't intervene in networks, we shouldn't even try. I.e. like, because we can't, you know, like protect, you know, all particularly marginalized folks that we shouldn't even start intervening in networks. And to me, I would have felt like indeed, networks are at the heart of this whole thing. Like if somebody is infected and they're not that sick, then the whole idea is it's a network issue, right? Mm -hmm. It's like, who's in their network, either occupationally or, you know, from a living context or in these like, you know, like spinning, like those are the one-off, like the the spinning thing in Hamilton. Mm -hmm. But it's like, who's in their network? How do you understand that network? And how do you like address those risks adaptively? Because not everybody needs the same level of resources Mm -hmm. and like, You know, a core interventional strategy is this idea of, like, equity. If somebody needs more, you do more for them. You don't shut them down harder. You know what I mean? You do more for them. You spend more for them. Because, by the way, not only do they benefit and everybody in their network benefits, we benefit. Like, Canada benefits. And so I I think that part of it has been this idea of, like, this, this, this sort of inability to particularly address the needs of, like, more marginalized folks. Again, not with this thought of like, I don't know, I've seen these things of like, well, you know, we need to like shut down parts of Toronto. And I'm like, so what are, are you gonna still let them out to like deliver you food? Are you gonna deliver, are you gonna let them out to do these, are they gonna have like a little ID card? Like I'm a DoorDash person and I'm gonna go to Rosedale to deliver food. Do you know what I mean? Like, it's like the thought of these things, it's like, I actually, I was like, if there's one thing that will like take me to the streets, I was like, that is this idea of like targeted lockdowns in this city. I literally, like, I'm like, that's it. Like at that point, I'm not, I'm not writing papers anymore. I'm going to take to the streets because it's so, it's like, it's so unCanadian. Not only is it so fundamentally unjust, but it's really Canadian, because these conditions existed long before COVID ever arrived. Yeah, it's not new.
0: Yeah, and you know the point that you make—that's actually even—you could see some exponential growth too. Is like take COVID aside. You know, if you invest more in some of these marginalized communities, you know, you get them healthier, you're going to, you, like, it, to me, it's an investment. They're, okay. gonna, they're not going to end up seeing me in the ICU or in the merge for whatever problem. Invest in that community to be able to, uh, to get them healthier, to get the resources they need. Simple things like, you know, even basic housing, like something okay. that we don't talk about enough. Um, like, that will be exponential. So, you know, I, I,
1: I mean. I, no, it's painful, right? Like, it's like, yeah. we could have used this time. Like, wh- when else could you have gone in a time when, like, to get more, like, conservative-minded folks to invest in, like, progressive ideas? Yeah. I'll tell you, very rarely, like, when a context come up where I'm like, the, I see literally, like, right-wing oriented folks being like, we, we need to really think about housing. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, so let's, why didn't we, like, like, we should have, like, attacked that. And we should have like fought for these sorts of changes that we know will not only like pay great dividends around COVID, but also like just like life and, oh. and, and like what we aspire to be, I think, as Canadians. But yeah. no, we're now like, you know, it's like sitting at home being like, well, that part of the city, cases are growing. So like, let's, let's just shut down the strip clubs there. It's like, sure, no problem. Have, let's have shut you, down the strip
0: clubs. Have you met Mark Tyndall? I
1: North have, North? but in other work, uh, in other pre-COVID
0: yeah no it's just because like uh we had a com- great conversation with him a few months back but this he was able to get or his network quite a bit of investment in terms of like creating some housing in the That's right. in uh Vancouver uh, community for the reason like people saw the value um issues that they've been asking for for years but because of COVID uh were accelerated which got me you know got me excited and full of hope As it
1: should yeah. yeah but bc like there's a lot of like i'm having a lot of bc jealousy like bonnie henry ballin, ballin'. Is, i mean like think about everything like everything that i learned i will note you know she's you know community medicine physician like incredibly experienced everything that i learn is kind of represented in what she's doing hmm. you compassionate language harm reduction approaches, engagement, resources before restrictions, like all these things that she's doing. I was like, that's the model, not close, like the idea of schools as truly an intervention of last resort, because you understand the fundamental value of education of children, especially again, because like, there's this like economic differential between like what rich folks can do to make sure their kids are going to be fine and more more economically marginalized, like shift workers can do to make sure their kids are going to be fine. Yeah. And so, you know, there is like everything she did there. And so like, you know, I talked to my colleagues and like they started like, you know, thinking about resources for long-term care facilities right away. they started working on paid leave, like housing, like everything. And to us on here, it's like, we, you know, we drew circles in a park. Do you know what I mean? Like that was the pain. I was like, Trinity Bellwoods, like, let's draw circles and then let's redraw them every three days and find people if they sit outside the circle. and like, it's so broken.
0: Yeah. I love the the point, though, you brought up a couple of times, too, about the positive psychology of this. Like, stop with the shaming. Reinforce, like, what you can do. Think about, like, a harm reduction approach here. You know, like... I give a simple example too. It's like, I don't know, you look athletic. I don't know you played a sport growing up, but remember the coach that would, there's the shame, shame, shame coach, but there was, the coach also was like, Steph, the way you did that was awesome. Now let's work on this. Like, you know, you can do this, right? Like you giving you the tools, giving you that positivity. Like, I think this is where people will thrive. They're more likely to buy in. They're more likely to totally. listen. And and I don't know. It's just what I'm seeing in Ontario, like, I just think it's, I guess part of my worry is that it's dangerous. Like, if you keep giving these flip-flop, you know, angles and this shame on you, shame on uh, all of you for doing what you're doing, like, where's, is it, is the trust element? Where's that trust going to be? You know? Well, um, that's right. I don't know. I just. I, no, I, just think- I,
1: I think it's, I think it's, it's such an important concern because it's, at its core, like, I always think of public health as a service industry. Hmm. You know what I mean? It's like we have a customer. It's the public. You know what I mean? We need to engage and we need to understand them. We hmm. need to engage them. And, and then we need to serve them. And if it doesn't work right away, then we need to iterate. And we need to keep working to we'll, we figure out how to serve their needs. And you get into this dynamic where you shame your customer and blame them. And I, I get it, by the way. I mean, I think we've seen this for other things like in sexual health and et cetera, where like fear, you know, turns to shame and anger. Like I say, you know, fear turns into anger and then you start shaming people and blaming and then soon enough, you're criminalizing them. Mm-hmm. It's just, it, it's like with HIV, it took years. You know what I mean? Like there was so much fear and then you just started like, they started criminalizing it a few years later. Here, we've done it amazingly quickly. Mm-hmm. Like it was like, and, and I, I'd like that part of it felt so foreign to me because just as a personal anecdote, you know, we were in the shelter, like in like, I don't know, maybe early April. And, and this guy comes in, one of the clients comes in and he's got an $800 ticket for like lying on a bench. And he's like, what do I do with it? And like, we all started just laughing. Do you know what I mean? Cause we're like, he doesn't, he doesn't have $800. Do you know, what I mean? he just literally does not have eight hundred dollars. So we're like, he's like, "Do I have to pay it?" I'm like, "I, I, I don't think you need to pay that ticket." Yeah. Do you know what I mean? I think it, like at some point they're just gonna like have to let these tickets go because it's like, where, where did you want him to sit? And then when people were upset when they closed all the bathrooms, that people are like defecating in the streets. I'm like, but where, where do you want him to go to the bathroom? Ex- like, what, what you there's know what I mean? No like, few,
0: there's no thinking to like it's there's no, it's not even a two steps ahead. It's half a step ahead. What do you think is happening next? Like, this is what's, it just gets to me. It's just, there's no forward thinking with this. And it's just like, as you said too, in uh, like the seasonality component, there was so much to think about. Oh my God. And we had months. We had months. We never got hit hard. Like Ottawa is very different than Toronto. We didn't get hit hit hard at all. Okay. And and I know a lot of places in, in GTA didn't either. And so you, you, things come down, hey, what should we do to prepare for the fall? How do we get the long-term care facilities uh, set up? How do we mitigate risk? What's the message we're going to send out here? And there, it's just, like I said, it's just no it's all kind of uh, reactionary. The whole thing seems so reactionary. Um, I, I don't know I'm, I'm I'm ranting a lot just because you know, it's kind of like what you said, like i'm a I'm a big I, I mean you you're doing this job because i think you know one of the values you must have in you is like justice and the ability to to be able to you know take care of those that can't take care of themselves as as well as as they, as uh, as needed and this is part of the reason why i've been more vocal too is this is just isn't right a lot of the stuff it's we're doing right. is not right the way you know the zoomocracy the um the lack of of planning, the lack of focus, the lack of targeted interventions, the lack of this or the the this ability to just blanket restrictions because this is what we're gonna do and this is what makes you know this makes sense or apparently makes sense to, to, to public health and to and to governments. It's just it's too much. I don't know. Sorry to rant off of no, for a second. It,
1: it, yeah. I mean I, I will say this that I think at its core So I'll just say there's sort of three core principles of public health that I always think are really important to keep in mind. So like social justice, the idea Mm -hmm. that you should balance intervention benefit and burden equity, as I said, where you do more for people who need more, but it also means you do less for people who need less and then participation, where you engage the community in the interventions that you want them to do. Those are three things that like we should be doing for all our interventions that we should be thinking about this. So I'll say this, like, the, the justice piece of it, ensuring there's a balance, either at an individual or community level of intervention, benefit and burden, is, mm-hmm. is fundamental here. And I think that part we've just not considered. And I think just to kind of close out that restaurant piece, like, you ask restaurants to do all these things to open. I, I don't know, but I, I think I should just say this, like, I don't own a restaurant, I don't work. in, I mean, i spent my youth working in restaurants and loved that time. But nonetheless, they did all of it and then you shut them anyways. And, and, I, and, I, and I will say that, like, I think to, that's tough for them. I think it's, 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 fun. it's like, I can't imagine the pain that kind of went through and, and just like wanting to understand why and, and the need to be able to provide them that explanation. Yeah. And that you can't just rely on the precautionary principle, because these are often small businesses. I'm not talking about like Earl's, like some major corporation owned. I'm talking about like, mom and pop own places that like yeah. this is their livelihood they're going to yeah. lose their homes they're going to yeah. lose like the ability to educate their children wherever they're edu- i mean like everything yeah. you're playing with serious things so when people are like don't worry about the economy it's like you know yeah. what how about you worry about your own economy i'll worry about mike my- i will say this like i'm also not at risk like we have we have a backyard we have everything we need. Mm-hmm. But like the whole point is you have to plan and consider like what is happening to other people at a very granular level. Mm-hmm. And when we do that, we stop. If we stop doing that, do you know what I mean? We, we lose the fundamental values that are intended to drive public health in Canada. And by the way, just like society in Canada, because mm-hmm. we like to think of ourselves as like an equitable society. I like to think of Canada as like a society that values justice and equity. Mm-hmm. And when we lose that, I don't, like, I don't know what we have left. You know what
0: I mean? Yeah. And I, I mean, I hope we will get back to that for sure. Um, like, this is another kind of issue that we danced on. But in your opinion, Steph, like, what should our goals be? Like, this is one of the, the, the anxiety provoking things with public health is that I, I haven't hear clear objectives. Like, it was clear in the beginning. It was, let's not overrun the system. Let's make sure our ICU's are are functional but in october 26 i have no idea what our goals are because I, i'll say this straight up too this whether it's controversial or not you cannot just look at cases like it, you can't look at them in isolation like yes they might be going up but you can't like for example compare them to april when you know the same amount of people weren't able to get tested like the denominator has changed tremendously in your mind what would be reasonable goals at for us?
1: Yeah. I mean, I think, so one key problem, I think, as part of this like weird politicization of this response is like, there's a lot of voices, a lot of voices. And, you know, and, and it feels very like individual voices that like are driving this narrative and gets into the media. And I worry like, the most optimistic part of me worries that public health is like, is, is just like kind of always like reacting to like the media and, reha- you know what I mean, and politics of it, because politicians want to, you know, be seen as being active and decisive and whatnot. But I'll just say this, that like traditionally in public health, in the pre-Twitter era and the pre-social media era, like we would, there would be a dashboard, you know, you would be having a series of different indicators and, and I could imagine indicators that include like positivity rates by age group. Positivity rates by different in different communities because that, you know, we're highly burdened competing health risks, you know, that were like, how are you doing on vaccination and cancer screening and all these things. So we're starting to see the dividends of that, you know, in the media lately with like more advanced cancers, less screening Your partner you know, uh, is a neurologist at St. Mike's is concerns about people showing up later for with strokes, not showing up for TIAs, saw that. you know, yeah, all, all of that Absolutely stuff. So you would that. yeah, so so you would have, you know, a dashboard-based approach and you would be like setting like key, like key performance indicators across each of them, and you and you keep iterating your response and you get it as, as empiric as possible. Like what I've missed so gravely, never mind the justice pieces and all of it is empiricism. Like, it feels like a foreign concept at this point. Like, just not value judgments about like, our, again, I I say strip clubs because it's like the ultimate part of the pandemic theater. Like one thing I'll just say this, like in public health training, the thing that I was taught over and over again is like, don't chase unicorns, Mm -hmm. don't chase unicorns. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? And, and, you know, so like, but most of this has felt like chasing unicorns and pandemic theater, like this mix of like showing decisiveness and and so i would have had like just like where are people you know affected why are they affected so for example staff of long term care facilities are far more likely to live in particularly marginalized parts of town there seems to be this like circulating transmission dynamic between their workplace and their home settings which is not surprising but like what have we done then to intervene there mm-hmm. like and understand in those communities to serve them better so there's like you know, the idea of like, like it's hard for me to even recognize a single empiric intervention over the last like eight months. Like masks and social, like fine, I have no problem with masks, I'll wear them. But actually like, you know, at its core, we, we know in public health, you actually like my day job is what's called implementation research, which is like you, you assess the difference between program promise and program impact. Like if every program just worked because you like told people to wear masks and then you shamed them into wearing them, like I wouldn't have a job. The reality is that we have a ton of interventions ranging from like the condom to like everything else that like exists and may work at the individual level but doesn't have the population level reductions that you would hope that they would have. Mm-hmm. So it is the case that, I mean, I would say a few things. Like It is at its core, I would want an empiric response that and now, like eight months into this thing is like responding to the, so much data that we have, whether it be by socioeconomic status, by racial, by, you know, kind of underlying structural racism that is driving a lot of these things, those disparities, you know, like spatial heterogeneities, occupational, differential occupational risk, like all of that would be informing a response. So at its core, I would want an empirical one. And by the way, the public would get behind that because you could explain it to them. Yes. You could talk to them and say, listen, we've now seen that, like, and not just like some, like using some case control study from the U S but I mean like actual, like your data from your setting, you know what I mean? Like all public health is local. So Mm -hmm. it should be responding to local dynamics and not what they saw in Wuhan or what they saw in Lombardy. but like now what's happened here. So I I think that that is core. Like it wouldn't be a single indicator. It Mm -hmm. surely wouldn't be cases. Mm -hmm. It just wouldn't be cases alone. It would be Mm -hmm. cases in context. And that's why I was saying about zero COVID mortality is that actually aiming for zero COVID and aiming for zero COVID mortality are fundamentally different programs. Those, you know, the idea is like you have a goal and then you set up a series of like smart objectives, like specific, measurable, attainable, relevant, timely objectives in response to that. And then you have these indicators and like zero COVID mortality as a goal is a fundamentally different program. And I just don't see it in a lot of places. It's in in some, but definitely not. You know, I see it more in B.C. I see it, um, you know. I, I see it definitely in some uh, ruralities and, and areas across uh, Canada, and I definitely, you know, that I see it in Sweden. I don't see it in here.
0: So, just like I'm four years old, like, what does that, what does that look like in those places? Like, just, to, just to be clear.
1: Well, I think that, like, at its core, what they're doing is so. For example, you know, things change quickly, but like, if you look at Sweden, people have said. There's no way to break the connection between cases among youth and cases among elderly folks. And by the way, I think that's untrue. I don't think we've really tried. I don't think if we like, tried right away, it would work right away, but like, one would have hoped we'd be iterating over and over and over again and perfecting that program. And so like, I actually do think that there's ways of doing that. Like, like I said, by, by thinking of this as a network issue, but I think at its core, what we've seen now in Sweden is like they have some increases in ICU lately, but like they're like estimating, you know, zero and one death a day when they've had increasing cases for like the last six or eight weeks. And by the way, they never really got down to zero cases. They've had, you know, cases throughout. And, and, and I think people want to look at this as like some sort of disaster when their excess mortality, like I said, decreased about late June, like we're in late October and it's yeah. basically been close to the baseline throughout that time and and ICU rates have been, you know, constant throughout that time, but they, you know, they've limited, like, you know, it's just a lot of education and a lot of Mm -hmm. empowerment. And at its core, I always say this, like, I'm so happy my mom's been there. You Mm -hmm. know what I mean? Like, I just think her quality of life and her, her actual, like the ability of all her non-COVID needs have been so better addressed there than what we could have ever done here um in Ontario so so that is to say I think that it is like it's not doing nothing and it's surely not let it rip like it's so like such a false dichotomy it's like it's just such a painful way of shaming you into even having a conversation about other interventions like well you don't value life I'm like really I don't value life is that that's that's what this is do you mean I was like (laughs) that you know what I mean and it's like I think it's just a way of like shaming you into not even engaging in a conversation it's like of course I value life of course I wanna serve people in the best way that I can. And by the way, I've been face to face with this thing, like, you know, since day one. And I have I mean, I don't, that's not like a hero say, it's just like an actual statement, we all have. But it's like, the, the dynamic has been like, don't tell me, it's actually because I serve folks, and I'm trying to provide care for these folks that I recognize that my ability to do that over the last eight months has been severely mm-hmm. inhibited. I can't get investigations for folks, I can't get them the care they need. I can't get them
0: the home care they need. I can't, I can't get anything other than COVID testing. Mm. No, it's <laughs> it's so true. Actually, just while I have it, do, do you have an opinion on the testing that we we do? Like, I, I haven't heard you speak on this before, but like the fact that it's, we can skip this if you want, but like if it's no. the fact that it's PCR driven, that it's uh, amplified, like, I don't know, depending on where your, your location is, like, is that something you, you feel?
1: Yeah, I'm totally happy to talk about testing. I mean, for me, I think of like testing in two key flavors. I think of testing as in the type of tests we're using. Yeah. And, and then I think of the strategies of like how we're rolling out testing. I think we talked a little bit about like strategies. Like I would align testing strategies with like people's lived realities, especially the people that we're looking to engage in meaningful ways. So that would mean things like potentially like workplace testing it would mean things definitely outreach testing home-based testing like we do sometimes for tv where we go to shelters we go to you know high-risk homes and, and we do this especially with the emergence of some of the like the salivary kits etc um so that i think like the idea of like how we've like rolled out our testing is painful to me because it's been very like bricks and mortar facility based and just doesn't work for like a large proportion of the people that we would really want to engage in those testing services then you kind of get into this thing. The other tests are like, let's say just for now, and two, two flavors, like the PCR-based test and the serological test. Um, the, you know, the PCR-based test, I mean, I will say this, all I would want is a standard. Do you know what I mean? People, there are smart testing folks across, like you know, the Public Health, Agency, Public Health Agency of Canada, Public Health Ontario, um, all the different public health agencies, BC, CDC, among many others, get together and say, like, this, this is how many times we're going to amplify this because we think that is predictive of onward transmission. Because I think that is another dynamic between what is it you're after? Is it a- are you after trying to understand if somebody's ever had this? Because if they're well enough that you don't really know, then you're really worried about onward transmission. Do you know what I mean? If this person is, you're, you're nice. you don't, if this person is in front of you, like at that point you're doing them all this stuff, like you're giving them decks anyways, but like yeah. you're doing all this stuff for them that you can and finding out if they had the thing is critical. And by the way, not that difficult because they're going to be really by remake. Yeah.
2: Um,
1: but like, if you're actually testing somebody who's generally well, you're testing them as a means of onward transmission. So yeah, obviously to me, I would want these smart folks to sit around and say like, this is our standard. We're going to amplify this thing like, you know, 40 times or 38 times or 35 times. And we're going to have that standard across Canada in the least. And we're going to recommend that standard. Like I just like this would have been a great thing for the WHO to said, like, if we want some comparability across all these different countries, these are the things that we have to do. And and I haven't seen it. So, yeah, in short, I would be most interested in a test that focused more on like actual infectiousness. Yeah. And because, again, if somebody's well enough that you don't know, that's the only thing you kind of care about is, you know, trying to prevent onward transmission. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean you're not otherwise you're just it's just data for people like me to play with and analyze. Yeah. The serological tests I think it's also kind of painful to me that like we know at this point that the sensitivity of those tests increases with the severity of infection. That by the way is not new for COVID. That's well known. It was like known in SARS and it's known for other coronaviruses. And and the role of, you know, cellular immunity etc. So it's like while this concept of immunity has been so deeply politicized the idea that like we can just use these serological assays as actual correlates of exposure also oversimplifies it because Mm -hmm. it's totally not that sensitive for most people who weren't hospitalized or had very, very mild clinical courses. Mm -hmm. So it's, it's just like the whole, the whole piece of it just feels so like not empiric. You know what Mm -hmm. I mean? Like just like, like Mm populist. And, 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 and sometimes you get into these explanations and they're like, it's, it's getting too complicated. I'm like, since when do we not embrace complexity? in public health issues, yeah. you know, since when is complexity a bad thing?
0: Yeah. I mean, especially when it gets down to the truth, like you, sometimes it needs to be, you need to go through that complexity to get your answers, you know? Totally. Um, That's right. Unbelievable. So maybe the last, last thing that we could touch on Steph. So what, what are your, like, what are your projections of this moving forward? Because I'll say this, I've said this on the media too. You know, we we put in these restrictions because you know cases went up and hospitalizations went up, which is fair. Like, which I'm much more comfortable with reacting, like reacting in general, yeah, of course. Um, but at the same time, what did we expect? Do you know what I mean? Like, as you mentioned, seasonal virus appears seasonal, where it's going into fall, we're in tighter quarters, like all these things that uh, can amplify the the exposure like what do you what is your projections or predictions of how this is going to behave throughout the the rest of the winter I guess
1: yeah I mean I'll 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 say this that like I I mean I think maybe I don't know if this is controversial it's just like my own truth is like I don't recognize really a meaningful intervention yet in most places to say Mm -hmm. that I mean like so it's like I actually think we're basically seeing like the natural life course because it's like the restrictions as you said like they're not they, they don't it's not an empiric intervention it's just like it's a delay tactic. you're trying to like you know prevent people from exposing each other but it's not empiric to like where risks are happening so I think we're kind of like and at some point you got to let them out anyways unless you really are like you know unless we're going to start playing really interesting games with like our societies in ways that like are even more extreme than what we've already done today so, I mean, I, I, first of all, I'm like, the optimistic part of me feels like there's a tremendous amount of opportunity to actually do empiric interventions that we've not yet done. The, my predictions are, like, I will, I mean, again, I, I noted, like, immunity has become this very political concept. Like, immunity is not a strategy, but I believe it to be a reality. Do you know what I mean? And so I was like... Like, I don't know if like lightning came down, but you know what I mean? Like, I, Isn't it crazy
0: though that it, you can't talk about it?
1: No, I can't talk about it. No, like, no, but, now, no, but you, you know, know what I mean? Like, like, why? Anyways.
0: I'll just say
1: that like, I think that there's going to be an inverse relationship. Like, I don't, I, I, I don't know what's going to happen with these vaccines. I'll say this. Like, I first started working on adenovirus-based vaccines mm-hmm. in 1997 as a master's student. You asked me about my master's of science I did it at McMaster at the center for gene therapeutics and we worked on cancer vaccines using ad based vaccines,
2: Mm -hmm.
1: like it's 2020, you know what I mean? So like, I'm hopeful for this vaccine, like the Oxford vaccine, but like I've been waiting for adenovirus vaccine since like, you know, since family matters was on television. (laughs) And so, you know what I mean? Like that, that like, but so like if a vaccine comes, it's going to take time for it to get like rolled out. And so we're going to have to kind of like deal with this winter, and this wave kind of as it comes I do think we're gonna see this like a bit of an inverse relationship and we're starting to see this like even in places like Italy and even in Sweden Stockholm that was so heavily affected is being less affected with Syria like they're still getting cases mm-hmm. but in terms of actually people getting sick it's really now in Uppsala in, in Italy the north is being spared it's really southern Italy that's really being affected and so, or, or even, even more granular than that, like neighborhoods that have been affected. So I do think we're gonna see a bit of an inverse relationship between the places that have been more severely affected with that sort of earlier wave and the ones that will be affected now. But I, I don't, I think that that, you know, we, we can account that to whatever we want. I do believe a lot of that is gonna be related to like interference with networks, more on the side of immunity than on the side of, of like, the actual kind of like interventions to date. Um, but I, you know, I think in there are opportunities to really intervene in long-term care facilities, which is now I, I don't know, like as of today we have eighty across the province in outbreak, like and and so I think that like we have this opportunity to intervene in those settings. I don't think we've really leveraged those opportunities to date, mm-hmm. and I, I think that there are better ways, some structural pieces to address the needs of people who work there to off count to offset those risks. Um, but I, but I, yeah, I mean, I, I think it's. I don't think that this winter is going to be as, as tough as like, these models are projecting. I, don't, I think that like, in Toronto, like, I think very, very regionally, like, one ICU may need to like, move people around, but yeah, I, saw I saw some that. of these projections where they, like, all, even in best case scenario, all our ICUs are overloaded. And while I don't think that this means we don't need to like, intervene, again, I've, the whole time I've been talking about empiric interventions. But it is to say that I yeah, I don't find that to be a very realistic scenario. I think that when you include, and I, I'll just note, even at that meeting where different models were presented, other models were presented with more of this heterogeneity by neighborhood, by community, and it showed a very different picture that was not as grave as the one that ended up making the news. So that is not to say we don't need to be active, and I want us to be doing all these things, but I, I just don't think that like our city is going to be overrun and like, you know, it's going to be the purge, and we're all going to be running in the streets. You know, with with no resources. I actually think it's going to play out better than that, as I thought in the spring, and I, I think now. So.
0: No, I I personally agree, and for a few reasons. One, you know, there does seem to be some some level of immunity that's happening. Like, I don't know to what degree. You know, Perfect. I I'm also seeing people come in less sick. You know, like compared to when they came in uh, back in um, in in the spring, um, I just hope that with us becoming smarter, hopefully we'll become smarter and and focusing on areas where that are heavier heavierly hit, heavier hit, um, we could be more uh, strategic and really mitigate a lot of this. Oh my God, Steph. You're balling today, my friend. This was awesome. This was absolutely awesome. Um, Just you know, just at a personal level, just to be able to be just I don't know, just just having an authentic conversation on COVID and lessons we've learned, where we could see this going. It's and just having that real conversation on 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 topics, even though I know that could be taboo, but this conversations that need to be had, and I hope. This is the beginning of some more authentic conversations, you know, not just you know amongst colleagues, but in the Twitter sphere and the media, because I think we we need to be able to ha- have real dialogue uh, about so many of these issues. Um, so, Steph, I gotta I gotta thank you so much for this. Thank you for taking the time. And I don't think this is going to be the last time you're going to be coming on the quadcast. Where can uh, people get a hold of you if you want them to yeah. get a hold of you? By the way, no, no, I don't I even mean, know I- if they want. <laughs>
1: You know, the, the, I always say this, like, the, sometimes the pains of working at an academic center is you're very easily accessible. I mean, I think increasingly, I'll say this, like, I stayed off Twitter for, for a number of reasons, because I think there's just, like, a lot of people like me in the media and, and with voices. I have been more active in the last number of months, so I, I'm always happy to engage folks in, like, friendly, non-attack-oriented discussions, yes. it's just been, like, Like we just need to kind of like regain our ability to appreciate that. Like we come at this from different perspectives. Mm -hmm. Everybody is biased in their own context. Everybody's coming at this from their own, like their own baggage. A lot of the intensivists like bring their intensivist lens to public health issues. Mm -hmm. A lot of folks who, you know, like often I think we are being touched by something as epidemiologists and clinicians. That's like more in our face than we're used to things being. Do you Mm -hmm. mean we're used to them being like their problem? And like we have very separate problems, and here we're all in you know we're all facing at least a similar threat, although we're at different risks for it mm-hmm. and so I, yeah I mean I, I, I'm happy to engage with folks, but it has to be like pleasant Sib- and yeah. it has to be civil and yeah. when we get into this thing of like attacking we're being so certain like like just a complete loss of humility in, in like understanding like infections and viruses and immunity and the complexity of it all um, I th- th- in those conversations I would have all day long the yeah. mean ones not so much <laughs> it's, it's just not worth it I,
0: no. I, you're not going to change anybody's mind when you're totally when you're you know, yelling at them absolutely again thank you so much for doing this and I can't wait for us to do this again my friend yeah I
1: look forward to it I really enjoyed it thanks
0: Qualcast Nation tell me stepped in throw down tell me you didn't throw it down thank you so much for listening if you want to follow us we're at Twitter, Instagram, YouTube, at Quadcast. Leave your comments at podcast 99 at gmail.com. Leave that five-star rating wherever you listen to podcasts. This is about increasing the visibility of the show so we can continue to change that boogie. Thanks so much for listening, crew, and I cannot wait till we connect again. Peace.